Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into our exceptional leaders at Bain and spotlights the incredible work they're doing. I'm the new voice, Daniel Yellen, one of our show's producers and a manager in Bain's Atlanta office. Today, I have the great pleasure of introducing and interviewing our guest. Today's guest is an EVP in Bain's Chicago office, the global head of consultant recruiting, and the host of this very podcast, Beyond the Bio, Keith Bevins, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. I feel like I've been here before, but I'm usually the one doing the intro. You know, and we had a chance to talk at the end of last year, but this time you are truly in the hot seat. I'm just not a facilitator. Nice. Well, what do we got planned for today? Yeah, so we're going to do the normal show thing. We are going to learn a little bit more about you, your journey through Bain, talk a little bit about what's going on in your life and what your plans are over the coming year. And uh, it's going to be a great time and people are going to love it, I'm sure. All right, let's do it. So I want to start the show off the same way that you start off every episode. I want to know more about what a young Keith Bevins was like. So what was middle school Keith doing after school? It's a great place to start, Daniel. So I grew up in a household where my dad was an electronics tinkerer, maybe an inventor, definitely a tinkerer. And we had electronics and circuitry and early versions of computers around me growing up all the time. And at some point, he bought me a Commodore 64, and I really liked playing games, but there weren't a ton of games out there, so I actually started learning how to program in BASIC to create pretty basic games. But I had a lot of fun with that, and it became kind of what I spent my time doing. I played sports, so I wasn't just sitting in my room on the computer all day, but in those early days in the mid-80s, you know, I was one of those kids who was playing soccer and doing other sports, but also coming home and spending a lot of time screwing around on this new thing that was called a computer. That's awesome. And so I have to ask, what does it look like to screw around with a computer in the 1980s? So essentially it meant buying a game or two and playing the heck out of it. But what ended up happening was one day we were visiting a friend of the family and the kid who was about my age, uh, also named Keith, K-E-I-F of all things, he had a ton of games, like more than I had ever seen before, like hundreds of them. And I was like, how did you get these? And he told me that he had a modem which allowed his computer to talk to other computers. And he would trade games with people over the phone line, which totally blew my mind because I've been playing like the same three or four games forever. And I came home and convinced my dad to get me a modem. Somewhere in middle school, sixth, seventh grade, I set up a bulletin board system, a BBS, and had people from all over the country calling me in my room and uploading, sending me games and downloading games that I was sharing on my floppy disk drive. Before you knew it, I had hundreds of disks and probably thousands of games that I could play all the time. So did these people know that they were talking to a middle school, high school student? When they, were, when they were trading games. With you know, a BBS or what I was running a bulletin board system was a lot like a standalone website, except, you know, only one person could be on at a time because of you were on the phone. And I don't think much has changed. I don't think people knew who they were talking to online. A couple of times after you got tired of chatting back and forth, you just pick up the phone and talk to the person. But no, I don't think they did, but I don't think they cared, kind of like today. But what that meant was I was meeting people, you know, in seventh and eighth grade from all over the country that were sort of new to the game. Uh, we were all sort of learning how to use BBSs and, and trade games. And you know, my BBS was basically like a website. You can picture a couple of chat boards, much like a Reddit sub, and then almost like a file sharing folder where people could put games in and take games out. And I ran that 24 hours a day from, from my bedroom. So when you run your Reddit AMAs today, it's not a new experience for you? Uh, that would be very accurate. I've been online and chatting with strangers online for 
close to 40 something years now. You know, where it got interesting was some of the people that I've met that I've kept in touch with over the years. You know, one guy mm -hmm. in particular, we got to be really good friends and we're still good friends to this day. He was working at Bellcor, Bell Communications Research in high school. And I remember asking him like, how did you get that job? And he told me he was in this program that they had run. And back in the 80s, you know, the Bell system had all kinds of money and they had all kinds of interns running around. And I found another program that was looking for high school interns as a sophomore in high school. And I applied for it. And they originally told me no, because they weren't looking for people from my high school. But I harassed the woman enough that she finally just let me into the program. So after my sophomore year of high school, I actually worked at Bell Labs doing some database programming and things like that. And then after my next summer, after my junior high school, I went back to Bell Labs for my second internship and was doing circuit design on like a high-end graphics computer, frankly, that uh, would be outpowered by my iPhone today, but at the time was really cutting edge doing 3D graphics, like the stuff you saw in Terminator 2. I had been doing a couple of engineering internships in high school, which was really cool. And that's where you met your wife too, isn't it? Yeah, I went to a, uh, I went to a mentor-mentee uh, session that they held for all the interns. And I remember distinctly being very disappointed because I thought I was going to be a mentor and it turned out they were there to mentor <laughs> us. So maybe I didn't read the fine print, but it wasn't a total loss. I did give this other intern that I met a ride back to her office that day uh, at 17 years old. And it turns out that was uh, where I met my wife. That's incredible. And so you end up at MIT, which I guess makes sense given this very demonstrated passion for engineering. Is, is that how you ended up there and ended up studying electrical engineering? Yeah, you know, up until pretty late in high school, I didn't understand what engineers did. It wasn't like you were going on the internet and just reading all kinds of examples. So I, I legitimately thought engineers worked on trains because that's the only context that I had heard it in. But as I got closer to the college process, I started to understand what engineers actually did. And, you know, at that point, I was six, seven, eight years into playing around with computers and circuits. And I had had, you know, by the time I got to MIT, I had had three internships at Bell Labs. And so going to a technical school, majoring in engineering and majoring in electrical engineering was sort of the next logical step because I was having fun. And I'd like to guess that my application was pretty good because unlike a lot of people who wanted to do engineering, I had actually been doing it for a couple summers when I applied. And so you joined Bain as an associate consultant right after graduating with a master's from MIT. And you've been here for now for your entire career. You're a lifelong Bainy. How did you get to consulting from such an intense engineering background? It's a good question. And I had a couple of experiences while I was in school that made me realize I really liked engineering. And I, I stayed for grad school. It was great. And I liked my classes. I liked the projects I was doing. But by the time I graduated, I had done seven internships because I started so early and I had the extra summer because of grad school. I realized that by like week seven or eight, I was ready to wrap it up and move on to something else. I was like, wow, that's been great. And I realized that a couple of things were true. One, if it was going to be a year round thing, I needed to like it a lot more than I had apparently liked it. Two, there were parts of being an engineer that just didn't feel right for me. Like I, mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the problems, but I liked being around people and on the decision-making side of things <laughs> as best I could. And, and honestly, 21, 22 year old me thought, wow, you'd be better at running an engineering company than being an engineer. And so that was in the back of my mind. And then, you know, I met a couple people along the way during the recruiting process and the different presentations that I'd go to see, especially black alums at MIT and what they were doing. And I met some that were consultants and they just seemed like they were doing really interesting stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day for me, if you want to be the best at something, 
you should like it as much as anybody else that's out there. That is a, that is a prerequisite. And I was at a place where there were people who were brilliant. And I remember going to lab one day as a sophomore and I leaned over to this guy on a Saturday and said, Hey, how did you get, you know, whatever it was, number four to work? And he said, well, which one was number four? And I went like, dude, there's only four circuits we need to build. How do you not know what the fourth one is? And he goes, oh, well, I actually finished the lab on like, you know, Tuesday. I just came in today to see if I could make it do something else. And at that moment I went, wait, he's here voluntarily on a Saturday just for the hell of it. He needs to be an engineer and I need to find Mm -hmm. out what my passion is because this ain't it. Not like him. A lot of things led to me wanting an MBA and the more I learned about consulting and thought about the things that I liked and the things that I didn't like, it felt like going into consulting would get me on a path to an MBA and have a really good set of experiences on the way to that MBA. And so as I started looking at different consulting firms, I considered a lot of options. And it just so happens that I was at a career fair and met a Bain guy who was an alum. And I recognized his MIT ring and went up and talked to him. And he happened to be working at Bain at the National Society of Black Engineers Conference. And I saw him there. And then the following year at the National Black MBA Conference, I met Adrienne King, who's on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago. And she got to talking to me about Bain. And when it came time to look for a place to work, I had felt like Bain was the right place for me. And I didn't apply everywhere else. And I didn't interview everywhere else, which a lot of people do. I knew which firm was the right one for me. And when I got that offer, my journey was done. It's so funny that you said that about engineering, because I actually had a similar experience in high school. I was blown away by a documentary I saw about Spirit and Opportunity, the Mars Rovers, and thought that engineering was going to be this glamorous Hollywood representation of it. Had the opportunity to do an internship over a summer, and I was alone in a room for eight weeks. It was just me and a robot and a computer. And right. I realized I, I, I need more human contact, I think, than, than, uh, than most engineers might. And it was fun for a summer. I had a tremendous experience. I worked with great people. I did relevant stuff. You know, I was working on cordless phones. I worked for Motorola where, you know, they were doing CDPD, cellular digital packet data. And there was this little thing you could plug into a laptop and surf the internet on your computer. And we were building those and it was amazing. And nobody knew exactly what you'd use it for. So I was working on stuff that was really new. But at the end of 10 weeks, I was like, yeah, I'm good. So we talk a lot about mentorship and relationships on this show across a variety of episodes. So I'm wondering, who was someone who made a significant impact on your first couple of years at Bain? It's a great question. And fortunately for me, our home office model really allows you to build those types of relationships at Bain because it's a big firm. We're spread out around the world. But when you join Bain, you join an office. And those people in that office become more than just people you work with on a project or you see in the cafeteria, in the kitchen. They're people that you'll see throughout your career. And that's 100% been my experience. And my introduction into Bain is probably the best example of that I can think of. You know, I mentioned meeting Adrian at 19 at a career fair in Boston. She was actually in Chicago when I joined and very quickly became a mentor of mine right off the bat. Another person who I mentioned earlier, Jason, I started before the rest of my class. Jason started second, but also before the rest of our class, which was starting later in the fall. So it was just the two of us as the two first year associate consultants in our star class. And we worked on the same projects for probably most of the first two years together, just because of the way things played out. And he got to become a really good friend, confidant, somebody who I could talk with about the ups and downs of the job. And then our first manager on that case was Julie Kaufman, who's also been on the podcast. And so when you think about three of the relationships that I sort of had on day one, 
all three of those people are still here 27 years later. Jason and I started as ACs, got promoted to partner at the same time, left for business school at the same time, and are still here. And our then girlfriends, now wives, also know each other well. And Adrian has been here. Julie, I've worked with as an AC, a consultant, a senior manager, an AP, and as a partner. And I work with her now in my current role. And so I literally have had 25 plus year relationships with people because of our home office model. I see these people all the time. And that's been really influential in my career. Obviously, you add to that team as you go, your crew. But having that group of people that you sort of see time and time again, you can't match that elsewhere. You can't just you can't just sort of have that happen by accident. And our home office model really allows that to happen. And I've been a beneficiary of it. So you've joined Bain as an associate consultant. You spent a few years there. You went off and did your MBA. Was there a moment when you realized that you could do this job well? First of all, I think it's safe to say that anybody that knows me and has known me for a long time, going back to middle school, Keith, knows there's not a lot of lacking of confidence. But at the end of the day, I think we all kind of wonder, can you do it? Right. You, you might feel really great as an athlete. I felt really great about my practice and my preparedness for the game. But until the ball actually starts rolling, you don't really know how good the other team is and you don't know how you're going to do. And that's natural. And everybody feels that way. And I certainly felt that way when I got to Bain, even though I felt confident that I could learn. I knew what I had done to get through MIT and knew that I could work as hard, if not harder than anybody. But at the end of the day, you just don't know if you can do the job. And I certainly felt that way at different points in times. You know, early on, one of the black ACs, Camille, sort of saw one of my spreadsheets in like my first couple of weeks and was like, wow, this is really good. And I was like, okay, good, good spreadsheet. I got it. And that was, it's silly, but it was a huge confidence boost. You know, just knowing that like I didn't screw up in the first month. But more importantly, you know, I got put on a project after six months that lasted for 18 months. So it was a big part of my AC journey. And it was a five-way merger, six companies, basically, that were getting rolled up to form a very large candy company. And I spent 18 months on that project. And the middle part of it, middle several months, I was put in charge of building a linear program to optimize their distribution network, which basically was saying, take all of our products, it was like five or 6,000 different SKUs, all of our manufacturing facilities, and I forget how many, there were probably half a dozen, all of our distribution centers, and then all of our customers, which are spread out all over the country, and figure out the cheapest way to get products from our catalog to our customer's shelves by optimizing the locations of our distribution network. It was unlike anything we had ever done before as a firm, literally. And I, for the better part of a month, probably five or six weeks, locked myself in a conference room that we called the cave because it was an internal conference room with no windows. And I was in there probably seven days a week, over 12 hours a day, just getting it done. And it wasn't like you had big data at the time. So, you know, when it came to getting 6,000 SKUs into a rational way, I had to figure out how to get it down to like 60 that could actually be meaningfully different. You know, it came time to building a linear program. I had to learn a tool. I forget what it was called, what's best or something like that, which was an Excel plugin. And at the end of the day, the model was too big to run. So I had to break it into quarters because I had to take their actual sales and it would take hours to run to get the full year. But at the end of the day, not only did we figure out where they needed to locate their distribution centers, we actually built two of them on the, on the tail end of the project. So I could actually go see the facility that was you know, a tab on a spreadsheet you know, six, seven months earlier, which was awesome. 
But that experience and the confidence that my manager gave me on the back end and hearing the partner at the time, Scott, talk about it in front of the office and in front of the rest of the leaders of the firm and sort of say, you know, we've never done something like this before and Keith nailed it. I mean, that's a pretty obvious sign that you can do the job. But again, until you do it, you don't really know. And that experience and the change that we were able to drive on that project was really amazing. And that was the time when I went, okay, I don't know what's going to come next, but I'll probably be okay here, at least as far as the near-term goal goes of getting into business school. That reminds me of two things. The first is that we probably shouldn't complain now when we have to version up an Excel spreadsheet because the cloud isn't working. Because that doesn't (laughs) seem like such a big deal. Although sometimes getting the partners to log out of the the deck can be uh, a bit of a hurting cat. Guilty. And then, then the second thing is, as I'm stepping into the manager role now, I've realized how important public praise is for the folks who you're supervising and how much, if someone does a good job, you need to tell them because you have no idea how much it could impact their view on themselves and their ability to do the job and the potential for them to be there 25 years later. You know, that's such a good insight, Daniel, because again, nobody would think I was lacking for confidence, but hearing somebody say it just meant the world to me. It gave me the confidence to say like, oh, okay, I actually probably know what I'm doing. I don't need to be nervous all the time that I'm going to screw up. What's interesting for me, and one of the things I like about Bain is I like to say Bain always gives you just a little more than you can comfortably handle at every level. And so that little self-doubt is for me a tremendous motivator. I don't know if I can do this, but I'm sure as hell going to try. I constantly look for those types of challenges where you're like, I'm not sure this can be done. But if it can, I'm pretty sure I can figure it out with my Bain team. So let's do it. You know, so that little bit of self-doubt is always there. But then, as you said, when you get it right, you have to remember that you need to praise your team. And hopefully people are, are sort of giving you the accolades so that you know, okay, I did it. What's the next big challenge? We talk about the confidence competence matrix yes. a lot when we do trainings, where you're really confident at first, and then you realize you can't do the job. And then you learn how to do the job and you get really confident. And then they change the job. And then you're less confident again. <laughs> and, then, and then you start um, all over. Yep. But that's how you learn. And so you were promoted to partner in 2008. And I've been told that as you move up in tenure, long-term success at the firm and in this job is due largely in part to finding work that gives you energy. You talked earlier that you didn't find that passion necessarily in engineering. But I was wondering when you were in a client-facing role prior to your current role, what kinds of cases gave you energy? You know, It wasn't a particular type of case. I worked across all of our industries. I was ultimately a partner in the healthcare practice from an industry perspective, but I spent most of my time doing performance improvement. So thinking about how to fix processes and make people more effective and more efficient at their jobs. So it was a very people-centric angle to the type of work that I was doing. And again, I had done all type, done all the different capabilities, all the different industries, but the common thread around the cases that I really liked I felt like I was having a really big impact on the organizations that I was working on, but more importantly, I was having an impact on the lives of the executives that I was working with. And then what really gave me energy, Daniel, was seeing the way coaching clients and more importantly for me, coaching my team was really changing the trajectory of their career. And so I ended up looking for ways to seek out those opportunities because those were the things that gave me energy. I mean, the work was great and we can you know, read the press releases and see the stock price move. But what I was most proud of was when I saw an executive get a promotion because of the work that we had done. When I saw my associate consultants get into business school or I saw them get to senior manager. And now I've been here long enough that I've seen several of the ACs and consultants I've worked with get promoted to partner, mm-hmm. right? And know that 
I wasn't the primary driver, but I had a meaningful contribution to their career trajectory. And that gives me a lot of energy. I'm tremendously proud of the people that I see succeed at Bain, knowing that I had a small part in that journey is, is something that me and a lot of people at Bain take a lot of pride in. So it makes a lot of sense that that's how you'd answer that question, because you've done a lot of things outside of your client work that are focused on people even before your current role. So you led staffing, you led Black at Bain. How have those activities shaped your Bain experience? You know, at the end of the day, we're a people business. Our most important asset, I mean, we have 50 years of experience and a lot of IP, but at the end of the day, our most important asset is our people. And they go home every day. And the next day they wake up and decide if they want to come back and stay a part of Bain & Company. What I think about people development, not only does it give me energy to see the success of people, but it also is what we're about as a company. And so for me, seeking out those opportunities in addition to my client work was really important because it allowed me to do more of what I like doing. You know, I was always the person on the case team that would want to see the spreadsheet and sit alongside the AC or, or go through the deck with somebody again or help them practice their presentation, regardless of what level I was, because I just really like seeing people improve. And so when it came time to thinking about what else you do at Bain, which is something everybody asks, Bain is not a spectator culture. Everybody at Bain has one, if not several other things that they're doing besides their casework. I chose things that were more people-oriented, other people take on big responsibilities around social things or athletic things or other, we call them you know, in Chicago, best place to work type efforts. I gravitated towards those things because I had a real passion for it and Bain lets you sort of pursue those passions. So I was very fortunate that I was able to take formal roles but, you know, I also tried to be a trainer when I could. I also went to as many recruiting events as I could. And I spent a lot of time working with our diversity groups to improve the diversity of the firm over my time here. And if anyone's wondering how I got involved in this show, it was similar. I reached out to you because I have a passion for this and I'd done this in a previous life. And it makes my job so much better. It gives me energy. It makes me better at the client facing part of my work. Exactly. And I like to say, you know, over time, it's not about what job you take or what organization you go to. It's when you think about the things you do every day, are you doing more of the things you like and less of the things you don't each day? And over the longer arc of your career, the more you can shift towards things that you like and shift away from things that you don't, frankly, the happier you'll be and the more sustainable things will be overall in your life. And in the spirit of doing more things that you like, tell me about your transition from being partner to talent operations as the core of your role? In about 2013, maybe late 2012, I had been a partner for about five years. And I had had, frankly, some pretty good years and some not so good years. But I, I felt like maybe the underlying excitement for the job every day was waning a little bit. I wasn't sure if I needed a break, if I you know, needed to think about you know, what else was next, I'd like to say you know, Hollywood style that you know, I had just turned 40 and was thinking about what, you know, what I wanted to do with my life. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. I had just been at Bain for 17 years and had thought, you know, is, this, is this really what I wanna do going forward? And so one of the things that we have that I'd like to think makes us the best place to work so consistently is you have an opportunity as a partner to take a sabbatical. And so I said, you know what? Outside of my honeymoon in business school, I've never really taken an extended vacation at Bain. And so I went to talk with our chief talent officer about taking a sabbatical. And when we finally got on the phone, I had rehearsed my whole pitch. You know, it's Bain, so I was prepared. I had my talking points. Right when we got into the call, he said a few things, and we had worked together a ton, and he's a friend and a mentor. Before I even got to ask for the sabbatical, he said, actually, 
given everything that I just said, the global head of consultant recruiting role is open and I want you to come work for me and do that. Mm. And I was like, wait, I, I have my whole script. I have rehearsed this. I've, I've invested time in this. How about you let me finish? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, that role actually has a lot of the things that I like. It is a large team that is at the time was really, really thirsty for professional development and career coaching and career development. There were a lot of things that I was doing client-wise around process redesign for streamlining and effectiveness that our recruiting engine really needed. And so I felt like a kid and you were saying, do you want to go hang out in the candy store all day? You know, do you want to be around processes that need a lot of improvement and people that really want coaching and investment in their PD? And I was like, candidly, if the numbers work, sure, I'd be happy to take that job. And the numbers worked. And I said, you know, I'll do it. And if I don't like it, I'll probably do it for two or three cycles and leave. But I think if I was honest, if I thought about staying as a partner, I probably would have done that for two or three more years and left. So I figured this might be more fun in the meantime. So let's try it. We've had a lot of guests on the show who have had long careers at Bain. You've mentioned a few of them earlier in this conversation. And in general, we hear them talk about the importance of keeping this job sustainable. Yep. You've been in this role now for 27 years. What are some of the ways that Bain builds sustainability into the job as you grow? The way Bain builds sustainability as you grow, it really comes in three different flavors. One is professionally in your role. And that is what we talked about a little bit earlier, giving you new challenges, putting you on bigger problems, helping you supervise people, which is a whole another chapter in the career that you're getting into as a manager now, I'm sure, giving you more ownership over client relationships and maybe more senior client relationships. So there's a lot of growth that from a sustainability standpoint, it makes it more sustainable because you get excited, right? It does. It's not mundane. There's always a new challenge. There's always a new executive. There's always a new supervisee. There's always a new problem. There's always a new industry. And so professionally in your role, Bain does a lot of things that I would say would keep you energized. We hire people that are passionate and want to have an impact and want to solve tough problems. And like I said, Bain gives you a little bit more than you can comfortably handle. So that's the sort of main core way. The second thing we touched on a little bit earlier, but I would describe it as professionally beyond your role. And if your role joining Bain is as a consultant or an expert or somewhere in the business functions, you have that and that's what you're going to do and that's where we're going to challenge you. But then you can layer in all these other leadership opportunities and participation opportunities in your work. And so you know, we call them extra 10%. Most of the time people are passionate about it, that they spend way more than 10% on them but they're excited to do it. What's really neat is that lets you start building your leadership skills. That helps you pursue some passions that you might've had. Like as an AC and a consultant, you know, I helped found junior achievement in the Chicago office. And I, I was helping us sort of stand up what started with a core group of four people. And by the time I, I sort of stepped away from JA, we were you know, well over 50 people in the office, but that was a passion of mine. You know, I did my master's thesis in an eighth grade science classroom. I convinced MIT that eighth grade science was engineering enough. And so mm. working with kids and working the school system was something I was passionate about. When I got to Bain, I remember doing JA when I was in college. I said, why don't we do that here? And a couple of other people agreed and off we went. And so it gives you an opportunity to build leadership skills, pursue passions. And what you see is it also allows you to build relationships outside of your immediate bubble inside the firm. Right. And if you're a consultant and you're knee deep in a case team like I was that month, I was locked in the cave. My extra tens were what got me out of the cave, meeting people that I wasn't working with. 
and building that village and that community around me. And so Bain does those things professionally outside of your role. And the third thing that we do is what I like to say is just personally, like in your life. We hire curious people, they're ambitious people, they're passionate people. But that, by definition, also means they have a lot of itches that they want to scratch. They're sort of always going, yeah, Bain is great, but man, I really would like to spend a lot of time in this part of the world, or I really want to go see what it's like to work in corporate and actually like be on the ground, not just recommending, or, you know, I really want to just take some time because I'm an artist and I want to paint for a month in the south of whatever. And so we actually have a lot of programs and efforts to help people do that. You'll see people do a take two and just take two months off work. Um, You'll see people do externships or transfers, or we call them internal rotations. Like we've had consultants leave the consulting side of the business and work in recruiting because they thought they might have a long-term passion in talent management. And so in your role, beyond your role, and then sort of in your life and personally, Bain has a lot of things that really help people make the job sustainable in the long run by letting them do a lot of the things that they want to do. Most companies, you have to leave to do those things. Here, it's just part of how we do it. So you never got to have the sabbatical conversation in 2013. And we're having this interview now for a very specific reason. You're going on a six-month sabbatical starting in January of next year. And importantly, I want to say this podcast will continue. We are recording a series of awesome episodes, specifically around our operating principles. And then we'll have a slew of guest hosts uh, while you're out. You're leaving it in good hands, Keith. Amen. Um, Let's talk about what your plans are. What are you doing for six months? So it's hard to believe that 10 years ago, I was going to ask for a sabbatical and I took this job instead. And it's been awesome. I have a fantastic team. I work with great people all over the world. But it's also been 27 years since I joined the firm. And it's time to go back and take that sabbatical that I meant to take 10 years ago. If I was 40 then, you can do the math. And look, outside of work, one of the passions that I have, and everybody knows, because it's on my bio slide when when we're presenting, but anybody who talks to me for more than 10 minutes knows that I'm a photographer. I like to get out. I like to get outside my bubble. Photography is a way for me to, frankly, I look like I'm still in college, so people think I'm working on a project, but it gets me into different communities of people that I wouldn't come across in my corporate consulting life. I get to meet artists all over the world in different subcultures, and that's something that's been awesome for me to do. And as a couple, my wife and I like to travel a lot. When I think about the break, I was thinking about how can I combine those two passions? For those who are curious, I post all of my photos on a bunch of different Instagram accounts. Uh, Daniel, you and I have laughed about this in the past, but KBEV photo is what people can find what I'm taking pictures of. kbevphoto.com is where you can get lost for hours looking at all the different types of things that I like to go out and capture. And so I'm thinking about, Daniel, how to take a break, how to scratch that creative itch that I have, and how to see more of the world and take some things off our bucket list. I have gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole on kbevphoto.com, and you don't necessarily expect a photo of body modification next to a photo of President Obama at the election night in 2008 or 2012. But there they are, right there on the website, and you can go see them too. It Um, is pretty cool to get out and do a lot of different things. Too many people spend too much time in their bubble, and they realize that there is a whole world out there where people are really struggling. You know, as an AC, my world was ending if my laptop crashed and I lost a presentation, and I thought it was the end of the world. And when you get outside your bubble, you realize 
that's actually not too big a deal. There's people that have real challenges that the real world is worried about. And it gives you a good perspective. And I, I wish more people would get outside their bubble. And so if I'm not mistaken, you're also not leaving podcasting behind in these six months. So tell me a little bit about that. My wife and I always have a list of places that we want to visit. We do two a year, plus or minus, maybe three or four, depending on the year. But for six months, what we're going to do is we're going to travel to different parts of the world. She told me I wasn't allowed to play video games at home for six months, frankly, or even not on the road for six months. You're not in middle school anymore. <laughs> not in middle school anymore, although that's debatable sometimes when I do get to game. <laughs> I'd still play every day. But what I wanted to do is do a project that I'm calling My Home is Special. And hopefully by the time people hear this, myhomeisspecial.com will be live and there'll be a trailer episode out for the podcast with the same name. What I'm going to do is talk with people from the places that we're going to be visiting. Depending on how this plays out, we'll probably visit somewhere between 15 and 20 countries. And I want to talk with people and explore what makes home special to them. And I want to understand, you know, when you're away from home, what is it that you miss? But more importantly, it's not just what you miss, it's why you miss it. You know, it's not that when I'm away from Chicago, there's certain food that I miss. But I miss the food, but I more miss the fact that like my family likes to go to that spot. And so the food brings back the memories of the time I spend with my family. And so I'm going to explore ideally with one person from every country we're going to visit, what makes their home special and try and explore a little bit about why it's special. And the goal is to have a conversation with somebody before I go. And then when we go, we're going to try and do some of the things that make home special to them and try and experience a glimpse of what they talked about. And uh, God willing, we'll get back on the phone with them when we get back and, and talk about it. Along the way, there will be plenty of photos being posted on the website. I'll probably do some stuff on my main KBev Photo IG stories to sort of let people know where in the world we are over those six months. And the goal would be to just document the journey and let it unfold. It's always good to have a plan, but plans change. But as of right now, that's what we're going to do. Ed KBev Photo, KBevPhoto.com, <laughs> MyHomeIsSpecial.com. Shameless Keith. plug. <laughs> Keith, this has been awesome. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to be on this side of the microphone and to learn a little bit more about you, your journey, what you've got going on. So thank you for letting this podcast give me energy. Just excited to uh, keep on working and see what, see, what you're, see what you've got going on over the next few months. Thanks. And between you and the team, I know it's in good hands. I just hope I have a podcast role when I get back. Thanks, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much.